Welcome to The Great Podcast, the show where we take a look at the important men and women of history and decide, once and for all, if they are worth all the fuss. I'm Jordan. And my name's David. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 17. Wow. Aurelian. Are you familiar with Aurelian at all? I mean, you said the name before. I have said it before, <laughs> but but no, nothing really... Nothing really comes to mind when you hear the name? No. Okay. Not this mind. Well, you're. I think you're going to like him. I think you are. So, let's begin. Actually, before we begin, big news. I think I mentioned in one of the first episodes that I could not get us on mm, iTunes, Apple yes. Podcast, because it's awful and it's really annoying to get set up. So, after a year plus and then finally deciding to call customer support, and being on the phone with them for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. able to get the podcast on Apple Podcasts. So Nice. Super convenient. If you're listening on there and you've been listening to all the episodes, you're probably quite confused about uh, why I'm saying that it's just now getting there. But here we are. Anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let's get started. Imagine, if you will, a small group is riding camels across a vast desert landscape. They're moving swiftly, descending toward a great river. At mm. the center of the group is a woman, a look of desperate determination in her eyes. Sand is kicked up as the group moves towards the banks of the river. They must get across soon. The woman chances a glance behind them, up the slight embankment in the sand. Her heart drops as the outlines of men on horseback appear over the horizon. Move, 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 the captain of her troops call out. They all kick into the sides of their mounts, urging them to hurry. The chase was on, but the outcome was already clear to all parties involved. There would be no escape. Still, they pushed forward, searching the shores for the boat that would ferry them across. There, there it is, there, move! Another glance over the shoulder sent dread through the woman. The horsemen were close enough now that she could see the sweat steaming off the exhausted horses. Within moments, they would be upon them. The bodyguards recognized this reality too, and so the captain called the men to turn about and fight to the last. For the Empress! He screamed as the horsemen closed in. The woman watched with a mixture of acceptance and horror as her loyal men clashed with her enemies. Blood was shed on both sides, but the horsemen were far greater in number. Soon, she sat atop a camel in a circle of dead and dying men, surrounded by a larger circle of those who meant to take her. Dang. Yeah, not good for her. Doesn't look great. No, and it's especially bad for the people that died. Anyway, last time we looked at the unfortunate reigns of Valerian and his son Gallienus. Mm. Mm-hmm. The two had split the duties of the empire until Valerian was captured by the Sassanids in 260, leaving Gallienus to rule alone. His reign was marred by near constant invasion and attempted usurpation for 15 years. The east was nearly lost, but Odonathus had risen up defeated Shapur from Persia and the Eastern usurpers and chose to remain loyal to Gallienus, which was a big plus for Gallienus. Posthumus in the West had not been so kind. Instead, he had risen up, killed Gallienus's second son, and essentially set up a new empire with the Western provinces from Britain to Spain. Goths, Sarmatians, Macromani, Marcomani, and many other tribes spent Gallienus's 15-year reign invading, sacking, and disrupting the empire from Asia Minor to the southern tip of Spain. One band even made it so far as Rome itself. Despite all this, Gallienus had done his best to defeat his enemies and hold his remaining empire together, and then his own senior officers had seen fit to remove him. 
Today, we will be covering the reign of Aurelian, who at the time of Gallienus' death was either the leader of the cavalry or just about to be. We're not entirely sure. But as I mentioned last time, Aurelian was not the man chosen as emperor after Gallienus' assassination. Mm-hmm. That man was one Marcus Aurelius Claudius. As Aurelian is around and in the thick of it with Claudius, we will keep a focus on Aurelian and witness Claudius' reign from his perspective. With that in mind, let's take a look at Aurelian's early life. Lucius Domitus Aurelianus was born September 9th, either 214 or 215. Close enough. Yeah, one of those years. Most of what we know from his early life comes from the Historia Augusta, but uh, modern historians believe he was born in Moesia, which made him Illyrian, like many, many emperors of this period. We talked about this region last time because it's the territory east of Italy along the Danube that has seen so much action during the crisis. Many emperors of this period, as I just mentioned, are of Illyrian origin. One source tells us Aurelian's father was a tenant farmer who worked the land of a senator named Aurelius, and he was likely a veteran of the army. He also married the senator's daughter, and the two named their son Aurelian in his honor. Beyond that, we know almost nothing about Aurelian's childhood. It is likely that his family had a history of military service, and he clearly followed in those footsteps. Most men joined the service around age 20, which would have seen him enlist in approximately 235 CE, which is the year that Thrax had killed Alexander, and that the crisis officially began. So he's starting out right in the thick of it. Now, most historians assume Aurelian began his career in the legions, though some speculate that he may have been of a higher class of citizen and begun his journey along the equestrian line, one mm -hmm. step above the, the rabble. Mm -hmm. This would help explain his rise to the rank of leader of cavalry later, but we must remember that Gallienus was known to promote on merit rather than political class. Right. It was a big Care deal. A little less about where you came from and how you do. Can you win the battle? Yeah. <laughs> did you did you beat them? Cool. You great. get more things. Promoted. Great. It is unfortunate that we simply have no solid evidence for his early military career. Uh, he joined up just as everything was about to go horribly south and spent the entirety of his adult life fighting barbarians and usurpers under and against a multitude of emperors and generals. Good times. Not for most. <laughs> no. One of these men, uh, who may or may not be real, we don't really know, was Ulpius Crinitus. He was likely a dux, which is where the term duke comes from, eventually, military leader, mm -hmm. of several legions and recognized Aurelian's potential early on. It is speculated that he even made Aurelian his deputy at some point. One story claims that when one of the various Gothic invasions took place, Ulpius was too ill to lead the men. So instead, he put Aurelian in charge, and the young man went out and defeated those gosh darn barbarians. Following this, it would seem Ulpius formally adopted Aurelian, and the adoption ceremony was attended by none other than Emperor Valerian himself. Ooh, high yeah. profile. Yeah, apparently everyone could see Aurelian's potential. Aurelian next pops up in our records when Gallienus went off on his last campaign against the invading Goths and the Heruli north of Greece. In this campaign, where Claudius was in charge of the cavalry, while Aurelius was left behind because he could not be trusted. Aurelius is the, the close advisor to Gallienus who eventually betrays him, mm, if yeah. you recall. Yeah, as happens. It, especially for Gallienus. Yeah. <laughs> it would appear that Aurelian was working under Claudius within the cavalry unit at this time. 
It is a bit dodgy on when the Battle of Nisus took place. It was either at the end of Gallienus's reign or the very beginning of Claudius's, but it was a major victory where a reported 50,000 Goths were captured or killed. Hmm. Aurelian was probably right in the thick of all of that. As we saw last time, Gallienus had to cut his campaign short when Aurelius revolted and took control of Milan. He marched back west with what forces he could divert from the Gothic campaign and managed to defeat his old friend in the field. Aurelius then retreated into Milan, where the siege was laid. It is around this time that Claudius, potentially Aurelian, and several other ranking members of the military set their plans in motion to remove Gallienus. This was most likely because they felt they could handle the situation, the various situations facing the empire better than Gallienus could, despite him being a very successful military leader. They saw the loss of Gaul to Posthumus and the virtual loss of the east to Odonathus as signs of weakness that they could not abide. One day, during the siege, Gallienus was told the enemy was emerging from Milan to fight it out. He rushed toward the front, not bothering to get his armor or all his bodyguards, and soon found himself cut off by Cecropius, the leader of the Dalmatian cavalry. When their intentions became clear, Gallienus made a run for it, but was soon cornered and run through with a spear, ah. one source claiming that Aurelian himself did the killing. Well, of course they claim that. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. we'll see that some of the sources don't like Aurelian much, mm. and so we have to take a little bit of grain of salt like we usually do. Whatever the truth, and whether Gallienus named Claudius as his successor as he bled to death next <laughs> to a river <laughs> or not, Gallienus was soon dead, and Claudius was declared Claudius II by the army. But importantly, Claudius claimed to have had no involvement in the assassination because, as we saw, the army loved Gallienus. Mm -hmm. He was a really good military leader and he took care of his troops. So the troops were not happy. Right, that he was killed. Yeah. And now we continue our game. How long do you oh, think Claudius boy. will last as emperor? And how will he die? Who are we talking about today? We're talking about Aurelian. Ah, okay, okay. So, uh, I don't know. I don't... Time's tough. He doesn't make it back to Rome. He doesn't make it back to Rome, no. okay? So, I mean, real short. Yeah, he's just going to get killed by the army as well. I don't know. Okay. The rumor's going to start that he actually did the assassination. They're like, ah, oh, no. So, the army's going to kill him? Probably. Okay. Army kills him. As revenge, essentially. Pretty much. And just give me, give me how much time. I don't know how long it's going to take, man. They're in the middle of yeah. fighting and stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like eight months. Eight months, okay. It's probably going to be like ten years and he just dies of slipping or something. <laughs> well, once the army had consolidated Claudius by hailing him as Imperator, he set about rounding up Gallienus's killers. Mm. Several conspirators just disappear from the historical record. Right. They're just gone after the assassination. Cecropius is not mentioned again. So he likely was relieved of duty and or committed suicide shortly after this. Mm. We don't know. Aurelian is one of the few who may have been involved who stayed in his post and, in fact, was promoted. He was elevated to Claudius's old position as leader of the cavalry. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Which casts doubt on the notion that he personally killed Gallienus. Right. Because they probably wouldn't have accepted that. They were like, oh, no, that guy, he was involved. That's fine. No, it's fine. Make him the leader of the cavalry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good. Unlike the army, the Senate and other powerful men in the capital were all too pleased at the news of Gallienus's death. Back in Rome, their hatred of Gallienus, which we did see last time, mm -hmm. 
was let loose. His brother, widow, and last surviving son were all murdered in short order. Oh, man. Members of the regime soon found themselves being lynched in the streets. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. How do you think Claudius responded to all of that? He said, hey, stop. Exactly. <laughs> hey, knock it off. Don't stop that. He immediately ordered a halt to the bloodshed and announced that he would honor his predecessor's memory. Quote, not only will you stop slaughtering his supporters, you will deify him at once. Nice. That's not a real quote. That's just what I think he said. Sure. I am sure the Senate absolutely loved that. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. No, not yeah, bad. we did love him and not we bad. will deify him. You are correct. <laughs> but they did it because he has the armies. Mm-hmm. With that settled, and a large donative handed out to the troops besieging Milan, Claudius turned his attention back to the important matter at hand, Aurelius. When Aurelius heard that Gallienus had been killed, he likely hoped to gain pardon from Claudius. He emerged from the besieged city to meet with Claudius personally. Some sources claim Claudius ordered him executed on the spot. <laughs> Later versions even say that Aurelian did the deed himself, though it's probably not true. Either way, Aurelius was dispatched, and Milan and its army were reintegrated into the Central Empire. So, boom, bam, done. Nice. This, this uh, revolt is over. Mm-hmm. With that sorted, Claudius headed south to Rome to assert his authority and ensure no one was murder- murdering Gallienus' remaining allies. As was tradition for new emperors, he, set up, he got set up as consul at the beginning of 269, but he would not be staying in the capital for long. So, you are already wrong. He did make it to Rome. Dang it. <laughs> So what has been the running theme for the invasions and insurrections throughout the crisis? Another general is just claimed to be emperor. Not yet. That's a good that's a good one. But whenever an emperor has to go respond to a revolt in the empire, mm-hmm. the border is open. Sure. And so troops just or enemies just, just come marching on in. Yeah. So we have more barbarians. Yeah, they don't leave. They don't. They're here forever. Alamanni and Jathungai tribes poured into northern Italy, resulting in the second invasion of the peninsula in only a matter of years. Remember, it had been 500 years since Hannibal had crossed the Alps before this, Mm -hmm. and now we've got two invasions. In early 269 CE, with Aurelian leading the cavalry, Claudius won a great victory at Lake Garda and forced the barbarians out of Italy once again. Nice. This earned the emperor the title Germanicus Maximus. Just as this short campaign was wrapping up, Claudius got some disconcerting news. The Heruli and Goths were once again invading by sea, this time with upwards of 320,000 men. As always, probably not a real number, (laughs) but uh, it is speculated that this was the largest invasion force the Romans would encounter for another 100 years or more. Wow, okay. Yeah, this was big. Claudius had another important situation to keep an eye on, however, posthumous emperor of the Gallic Empire to the west, was in a tough spot of his own. One of his generals had risen up in revolt, and Claudius was keeping a watchful eye on his Mm. rival, waiting for an opportunity to strike. With these two issues on his plate, he decided to stick closer to home and watch the Gauls while sending his top general Aurelian to begin the campaign against this latest Gothic invasion. So Aurelian marched his infantry and cavalry eastward toward Macedonia, where the Goths were in the process of sieging Thessalonica. When they heard of his approach, the barbarians broke off the siege and began ravaging the northeast of Macedonia as they attempted to get back home. 
Aurelian soon caught up with them, however, and managed to kill thousands by strategically deploying his cavalry over the course of many skirmishes. Nice. He did not risk open battle at this point, instead waiting for Claudius to arrive with the full Imperial army when he felt safe to do so. Mm -hmm. Seems logical. It does. It's good planning. At some point during this initial campaign, Claudius made his decision to focus on the barbarians rather than get tangled up with Posthumus and his revolt. Posthumus would have to wait. So Claudius set out for the east, leaving his brother Quintilus in charge at the capital. After months of constantly harassing the enemy, Aurelian was happy to receive news that Claudius was approaching with his legions. The cavalry was then used to push the enemy toward where Claudius was marching, and soon a major battle was joined. This is known as the Battle of Nisus that I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. where it might have happened here and it might have happened earlier. We'll put it here. Arguably one of the most important battles of this era. Oh, for sure. Both sides took immense casualties, enough so that Aurelian and Claudius felt it unwise to risk another pitched battle. But the Goths were no more enthusiastic about fighting than the Romans were. So Claudius got himself in a good position and launched an ambush. This was highly effective, and many more thousands of Goths and Heruli were killed, but still they were not completely shattered. Though incapable of mounting a significant offensive, the barbarians were still a large force that could not be attacked in an open battle. Aurelian continued his approach of constantly harassing the enemy with his Dalmatian cavalry as they attempted to march through Thrace. Soon, the Goths found themselves and their animals on the brink of starvation and surrounded in a place called Hamus. Winter set in, and both armies sat and waited. Oh, it's terrible. Just dig in for the army, oh, or for the winter. Yeah, I hate that. Just <laughs> sitting in holes in the cold, uh-huh. wet mud. Yeah, yeah, conditions were bad, as is always the case during winter campaigns. Food was short and tempers shorter. Discipline was becoming an issue, especially since the Romans felt that they had kind of won this war a while ago. Like, mm-hmm. why are they still here? Yeah. But they were mistaken. To the surprise of everyone, the Goths made a sudden and violent attempt to break from their confinement. Claudius, against Aurelian's advice, sent out only the infantry. Oh, no. He believed the Goths were too weak and their spirits too broken to defeat the legions in an open battle. Why would you just assume that? Yeah, it'd be interesting. the people to not fight like that. Right, we have a bunch of horses. Why don't we... Literally, like, one of the first rules of war is to have more people. Yep. Just try to have more overwhelming force. Why would you not? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It'd be interesting to like be in that tent hearing yeah. Claudius's argument because Claudius is a good general too. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the battle <laughs> began to turn south and many Romans began to die, Aurelian jumped into action and intervened with his cavalry. Mm-hmm. This was enough to save the army from complete collapse, but it was not enough to prevent the Goths from breaking out and escaping once again. Yeah. So they just keep chasing them and chasing them and chasing them, but they can't pin them down. This chase continued from 269 to 270. Both armies were exhausted and the land was so torn by war that food was scarce on both sides. Even worse, though, was the reemergence of our old friend, the plague. Yay! It never goes away! Now it's back. As is always the case in ancient warfare, disease was... All warfare, frankly. Disease was killing far more men than weapons. The plague uh, was not picky either, uh, nor were emperors immune. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Claudius soon fell ill and needed to retreat back to his headquarters to recover. Aurelian would keep the or continue the cleanup on his own. He did this by breaking up the Gothic force into smaller pieces that could be overwhelmed and destroyed. 
those he captured were either sent packing back to their homelands or employed as frontier guards with the regular legions. Others became farmers in the regions they had so recently been ransacking. These farmers were then ready to grab their swords should the need arise, because they're obviously soldiers. Mm -hmm. This would be a policy of Aurelian's for the rest of his career. Smart. It is. Pretty smart. Claudius, meanwhile, took the title for which he is known to this day, Gothicus Maximus. Oh, nice. As he is technically Claudius II, Mm -hmm. because the fourth emperor was a Claudius, he is usually referred to today as Claudius Gothicus. But he would not hold this title for long. In the summer of 270 CE, Claudius succumbed to the plague like so many of his soldiers. Dang. He had reigned for two years. Almost. I it almost was, got it. You I were, was close. So close. were close. <laughs> so this, I think I mentioned in the last episode that I have a coin. My one Roman mm-hmm. coin is from Claudius. Uh, so I just wish that he was a little bit more interesting. We could have done a full thing on him. Less but, dead by the plague. Yeah. 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 But yeah. one uh, brief side note with Claudius, since we didn't deep dive him, he is tied to St. Valentine oh. of Valentine's Day fame. Uh, the histories are kind of weak and we do not know for certain, but the gist is that uh, Valentine met Claudius and they became friends. But then, to simplify, when Valentine tried to convert Claudius to Christianity, he had him executed. Oh, wow. That's drastic. Which seems like it's missing a lot, you know? there's a. It seems like there's a lot of steps in between. Right. So, I... And even the... I didn't want to dive into it, but the little bit of research I did, that was basically what I got. Okay. I was like, okay, well... <laughs> uh, all right. Okay, so... Now, as has happened time and again in the Roman world, there was now a power vacuum. Aurelian was in a really strong position with the loyalty of a large standing army, Mm -hmm. but he was far from Rome and still still dealing with uh, many bands of Goths roaming around Greece and Thrace. Islands in the Mediterranean were also still suffering at the hands of these seaborne invaders. But someone was back in Rome and all too willing to take control. Claudius had left his brother, Quintilus in oh, charge boy. when he'd set out on the Gothic campaign. And it seemed only natural that Quintinus, Quintilus would follow his brother to the purple. The Senate were not ignorant of the situation, as perhaps Quintilus was. It was clear that to them that Aurelian was likely to march back to Rome as soon as possible and claim his place as emperor. <laughs> but Quintilus was right there and had the loyalty of the Italian troops. So the Senate backed Quintilus and proclaimed him emperor. Claudius, obviously, was deified immediately. Yep. So how long does Quintilus last, Jordan? Oh, man. Still not the guy we're talking about. No. I don't know. I don't feel like Aurelian's going to be, like, super mad about it. I have things to do right now, but I'm going to take care of you later. Mm -hmm. I don't know. He's going to last. He's going to last, like, uh, 13 months. 13 months. Because Aurelian's got to clean up the barbarian stuff and come back and boot right. him out. And yeah. when he comes back to Rome, the Senate's like, oh, wait, no, we actually want him. Mm-hmm. So he's going to they're gonna tell him to step down or die. Yeah, I don't think anyone gets told with to step less, down. I was going to say with less of an option. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you think the Senate kills him? Um, I think they'll back his assassination. Okay. Senate backs assassination. So when news reached Aurelian and the army, it was basically a foregone conclusion that the men would expect Aurelian to claim the purple for himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those who had backed the coup and assassination of Gallienus immediately backed Claudius's right-hand man to replace him. 
and rather than his nobody of a brother. He has a brother? I don't right. Know. Yeah. I think. <laughs> huh? <laughs> Who's that? And so it was that the Romans once again had two men vying for power. Yep. Their collision course would bring them to Aquileia, where Quintilus mustered his army and awaited Aurelian's arrival. My main source for this episode is Aurelian and the Third Century by Alaric Watson. What a name. I would I put what it in there. Name. I was like, what a great Alaric name. Alaric Watson. Alaric Watson. Both are great, first and last. Yeah. So uh, I got a good quote here. Quote, as Quintilus prepared to meet his rival's advance, there must have been many, including, in all likelihood, Quintilus himself, who doubted his ability to withstand yes. Aurelian's challenge. <laughs> Against Aurelian's superior military experience and better trained men, Quintilus's only advantage, the relatively insignificant incremental legitimation provided by the Senate's recognition of his claim was no compensation. Yeah. No. So the Senate said Not so. No, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you do? You, sh you should have said, mm, no. Nah. <laughs> what if I just accept Aurelian? Maybe he'll give me yeah. a job. I'm going to retire, I think. I'm going to go hang out in the countryside somewhere. <laughs> that would have been a forward thinking thing for Quintilus to do. Yeah, because he's going to die now. <laughs> yeah. Well, by the time Aurelian arrived at Aquileia, Quintilus was dead. Already? Yeah. <laughs> See? Yeah. yeah. Either his men had killed him when they saw that it was hopeless, or Quintilus himself had ended it when he saw it was hopeless. Either way, Aurelian was now in control of the empire, or at least the third of it that oh, was still solidly God. under Rome's sway. Yeah, right. A lot I of forgot to put in here how long that took. Oh, boy. Let me Let me pull that up. Estimates range on how long Quintilus reigned from 17 to 77 days. Dang it. He, man, <laughs> that man really turned around and said, mm, barbarians, one minute. Well, <laughs> and hold just on. sprinted. I thought he'd take care of the barbarians first. He yeah, did not it, even It does seem about it. like that would be the better choice, yeah. especially since we keep... What happens when the emperor leaves yeah, the front to go around? Yeah, exactly. What happens? Okay, so you guys, spoilers, you know what's coming. Um, so the troops at Aquileia <laughs> cheered their new emperor as he entered the city. Oh, wait. I have a question to ask you. How long does Aurelian last? Okay, our guy. The main man himself. And how does he die? The main man himself. Okay, let's see. He's definitely a military emperor. Um, let's see. I think, I think he's going to die in battle. Hmm. I'll wait. To, you don't sound convinced. So it's I'll tough. Wait. It's I'll tough. Wait to it's hard it to predict history that you never researched. You know. Um. So let's see. So he either dies in battle or he wins the battles and then dies of like disease in Rome. Can I give two guesses? Can I give a battle death and a disease death? Nope. I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> so so he's gonna die. He's gonna potentially die in battle in like seven years after all this fighting or he's gonna secure the borders go back to rome and reign for like uh 17 years and and die of some sort of disease or sickness okay i will okay so since you have done a very poor job of guessing i will give yes. you the two so <laughs> i will continue so being i heard bad. disease in 17 years so uh -huh. that's your second guess so battle what's the timeline if you think i he said dies? seven years seven years my my brain wanted the sevens so okay so he's going to die in battle in seven years, uh -huh. or he's going to die of disease in 17. Correct. I love that. Okay. Yes. Let's, let's check out what happens. <laughs> so the troops at Aquileia cheered their new emperor as he entered the city. 
When word reached the Senate in Rome, they swiftly pledged their allegiance and sent a delegation to Ravenna to meet with him. Mm -hmm. Some of the men sent in this delegation will be important soon. Aurelian spent a short time or a short while getting things in order, primarily getting the mints printing coins again, notably in honor of Claudius. Nice. But what always happens, as we just discussed, when Roman armies pull back to fight a civil war? Yeah, it's almost like when you leave the border open, your border enemies take space. It's kind of crazy how just like after decades of war, they're still just so ready. Oh, yeah. They're just ready to come in again. I saw those guys leave. We should probably just walk in there. Let's go. So the barbarians are coming once again. Vandals were amassing near modern Budapest. And so he organized his army and set out once again. As he left, the senators couldn't help but notice that uh, he never bothered to go to Rome. He's not coming to Rome. Ain't he's, got no time. He's at Ravenna. Ain't like, got no time for that. Well, this was further compounded when, in the year of 271, uh, Aurelian assumed his first consulship. This was done away from Rome as well, mm-hmm. which is pretty abnormal. More and more, it was becoming clear that emperors needed very little from Rome. Uh, more, more, it was, do you have the army? They're in the middle of war forever. Yeah. This is important. <laughs> yes, it is. But this is um, this is kind of going back to Severus and Caracalla, which has been a while ago now, mm-hmm. but they were the same. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't really need Rome when I have the army. Right. In peace or not, what do I need Rome for? Mm-hmm. As Aurelian marched out, he sent word that the people should move in from the countryside and hunker down in the cities since the vandals were ill-equipped for siege warfare. He then bided his time as the vandals slowly ran out of food as the seasons changed and winter set in. Oh, again. Once they were thoroughly undersupplied, he struck. It took several attempts to properly pin down the vandals, but Aurelian was finally able to claim a significant victory and get the barbarians to talk terms. It was agreed that the vandals would supply 2,000 horsemen to the Romans in return for safe passage back to their homes across the Danube. Some foolish bands decided to go off pillaging on their way back, but they did not last long. Aurelian did not suffer treachery lightly. Yeah, yes. But, as always, this victory was short-lived. Word soon arrived that while Aurelian was fighting along the southern Danube, a large group of Jathungi had broken through across the northern portion of the river. Yeah, always. They do not stop. They had sacked and looted through Raetia, and then began crossing the Alps into Italy. Oh, my God. Third time Mm -hmm. in about 11 years, barbarians were in Italy. By the time Aurelian had finished overseeing the withdrawal of the Vandals and marched his force back to Italy, the city of Placentia was already sacked. Hoping to buy some time, Aurelian sent word to the Jithungai that they were more than welcome to surrender and accept his rule. Mm -hmm. Hey, Mm -hmm. guys, you know, I'm coming. Like, you can just give up. If you want to just stop. I love that boss move. Yeah. They laughed at this and declared that they were free men. And if he wanted to subjugate them, he was welcome to try. Oh, and he will. Oh, he will. Yeah. The barbarians continued moving south and Aurelian was forced to give chase. But his men were exhausted. They had been out east. Mm -hmm. They had come back to Italy. Then they had gone up north and then they had come back to Italy. They're very tired. However, they could not stop. And that was their mistake. An ambush caught the exhausted men off guard and nearly cost them everything. Mm. With the Romans reeling, the Jathungai pressed their advantage and marched toward Rome. Oh, the big one. 
panic began to sweep the city, as one would expect. As mentioned last time, Rome had no defensive walls Mm -hmm. and no significant military force was nearby to protect them. Their only hope was Aurelian and his battered army. People in the city were naturally growing restless. And this was exacerbated by issues with the food dole from Egypt. Oh. Soon there was actual unrest popping up, which is not what you want when attempting to defend your city from barbarians. No, I sense a collision between our intro soon. Oh, perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. We shall see. But they still had hope that Aurelian could defeat the enemy in the field and save them. He continued to pursue his enemy until he finally caught up with them and and forced a pitched battle. Here, he was completely victorious. Nice. The enemy had been pushed against the banks of a river, and many were pushed into the rushing waters where they drowned. Mm. The Jathungai attempted to sue for peace. We have a snippet from Dexippus, who was a Greek historian alive at the time, regarding this battle and the subsequent parlay. So, quote, In order to intimidate the enemy, Aurelian drew up his army in battle array. When the muster was to his satisfaction, he mounted a high rostrum wrapped in a purple robe and arrayed the whole battle formation around him in a crescent. Beside him, he placed his commanding officers on horseback. Behind the emperor were the standards of the selected troops, golden eagles, Mm -hmm. imperial images and banners with the names of the units highlighted in golden letters, all displayed in silver plated poles. Once these things were all arranged in this manner, the Jathungai were brought in. As they entered, however, the barbarians were still confident to the point of arrogance. They essentially said, look how strong we are even after that defeat. Not only that, look how far we penetrated into the heartland of your territory. Why don't you just let us take our loot and head home? (laughs) No. We promise, fingers crossed, that we won't sack any cities along the way. I don't believe them. Neither did Aurelian. Yeah. (laughs) He was not amused. He rejected this proposal, leaving the Jathungai no choice but to march north out of Italy with the legions chasing them. Aurelian waited for his moment to strike so he could inflict maximum damage and recover as much of the booty as possible. In this, he was completely successful. Nice. The barbarians were utterly routed. Thousands were killed and those bands that broke away to make for home on their own were swiftly run down and destroyed. Thus, a horrific invasion was crushed, earning Aurelian the title Germanicus Maximus. Here we go. With all that handled, Aurelian decided that now it might be a good time to head back to Rome and get something settled. Nice. As Aurelian made his way to the capital, word of two revolts reached him. One was by a man called Septiminus, but uh, he was dead by the time Aurelian heard that he'd declared, been declared emperor. The second was led by a former ally of Gallienus, a general named Domitianus. But he had helped fight off the Macriani pretenders uh, a decade earlier those were the guys who after valerian's death out east had risen up and the guy made his two sons emperor oh yeah yeah yep but this was this two this revolt was suppressed before aurelian needed to get directly involved as well and with the death of domitianus aurelian was the last of the great generals who had served under Gallienus. claudius was dead domitianus was mm-hmm. dead this was good news and it meant that there was really no one to challenge his authority anymore within the empire but back in rome Things were also going poorly. The barbarians had nearly reached the city and panic had set in. On top of this, there was the serious issue there was a serious issue going on at the mints in the capital. The man in charge of the mints was called Felicim- uh, Felicissimus. 
Felicissimus. Good luck. Felicissimus. The man in charge of the mints was called Felicissimus, and I'm going to call him Felix because <laughs> I've tried pronouncing it a few times. Nice. It's, it's F-E-L-I-C-I-S-S. I-M-U-S. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Felix. And it appears that he was up to no good. Mm. Corruption. On a scale that it was safe to call it treason, was afoot. With the economy in a terrible state for decades by this point, it had gone unnoticed for some time that the coins coming out of this vital mint in the capital were significantly debased and underweight, allowing Felix and other mint workers to pocket the profits. Oh, man, just skimming off the top. A lot. Mm -hmm. When Aurelian got word of this, he called for Felix to be arrested and tried. Now, Felix was not going down without a fight, and since Aurelian was not in the capital yet, he, Felix, called for his mint workers to rise up against the emperor. It is not clear what exactly happened next, but it seems that Felix died. Yeah. Either by execution or murder. Regardless, his call to arms was enough for the panicked mint workers to begin rioting and causing violence in the streets, which, as you can imagine, only led to more people rioting mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and causing violence in the streets. This anger and fear was compounded by the recent events in Egypt, which we will cover in a moment, yes. which sparked concerns about food shortages mm -hmm. and left people questioning Aurelian as emperor. Maybe people on camels are involved. Possibly. <laughs> possibly. Even some senators soon joined in the revolt. Some even who had gone out to meet with the new emperor. Remember when they sent people out to Ravenna to meet with mm -hmm. the emperor? Yeah, some of those guys were now revolting only a few months later. Aurelian ordered the urban cohorts and some contingents of the army in to squash the uprising. A very bloody fight ensued on the Salian Hill, resulting in upwards of 7,000 casualties. Oh my god. Yeah, it was bloody. But order was soon restored, and Aurelian arrived in the city shortly after. The main mint of the empire was temporarily closed, and other mints were set up to prevent this from happening in the future. And we'll cover all that a bit more later. As one could expect... Those captured after the fighting were not let off lightly. As Watson puts it, quote, a large number and not just the ringleaders, he immediately put to death. Several senators were among those rounded up and summarily executed. Hmm. Aurelian had now made a few things very clear. Aurelian was not one to be messed with, and he was not one to take treachery and betrayal lying down. Yeah. Ain't no time for this. <laughs> no get, time at get all. It together. Foreign and internal threats alike would be put down and order would be restored. After all this, he took a moment and took stock. There were obviously significant underlying issues causing all these troubles faced by the empire. Which of these could he proactively work on to prevent further revolts and other issues from happening again? Thoughts on things he could do about mint workers rioting and barbarians marching on Rome, causing panics. That's a question for me. Yes. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I guess he can bolster up the armies to to get the barbarians out again. Think. Uh, think going. more specifically for the city. Barbarians marching on the city. What do they need? Well, I guess he's going to start building walls. Boom. Finally. Got it. The mints. Uh, I don't know, man. Some sort of incentive to keep working properly. Now look at you. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So those are the two main things. So the first thing that really got him is okay. I get that we haven't needed walls. Mm -hmm. We need walls we now. We should probably cut walls up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> After these 500 years without the need, 
we had three barbarian hordes get way too close to the city. Uh, the ancient Republican walls were so old and obsolete that they were virtually useless back in Augustus's day. Yeah, I remember us mentioning those. Like, there's kind of a piece of property over there. We're talking they were really... like hundreds of years outdated oh, by the yeah. time Augustus came around 300 years ago. Yeah, like, yeah. it wasn't good. And so, Aurelian ordered construction of a new circuit wall to enclose the city. He oversaw the planning and preparations for this new wall personally. One would expect that something like this would be handled by the army since Aurelian was a military man, and Roman troops are very experienced in construction. Mm -hmm. But Aurelian knew he could not spare any soldiers. He had grand plans ahead. So he rounded up all the craftsmen and guild members of the city and essentially conscripted them and uh, put them to work building the walls. Another thing that was seriously hurting everything was the busted economy. I've been mentioning that the economy has not been doing well for a very long time yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Aurelian spent a lot of his time while in Rome contemplating why that was. So let's take a quick look at the economy. And this won't get too deep, but there's a little bit of numbers and stuff. Oh, God, I moved the script too far. And it's gone. It's gone. We don't know Disaster where we are anymore. Strong. So as we've seen, since all the way back in Nero's time, which is almost exactly 200 years before this, the coinage of the empire had faced continued debasement. Mm -hmm. So under Augustus, silver coins had a purity of 98%. So 98% of a silver coin was silver. Mm -hmm. By the time of Severus, that number was down to 50%. Caracalla then followed and debased the gold coin significantly and introduced a separate silver coin known as an Antoninianus. Oh my. Antoninianus. Antoninianus. There we go. Because his name was Antoninus. Mm. This coin fell out of use at, after his death, but then reemerged a couple decades later in 238 CE, the year of the six emperors. Then the Antoninianus was debased again and again until in Gallienus' reign, it had a silver content of 1.5%. <laughs> Why is it? It's not, it's not, it's not a coin. It's, what is this? It's cardboard one. Yeah, like, I don't we... even understand. <laughs> Obviously, the economy had been in shambles for a long time by the time of Aurelian's reign. Wars had been nearly constant for decades at this point, and most of the fighting was now happening on Roman land, which mm -hmm. they were not used to. This destroys economic production, obviously. The troops were also insanely expensive to pay and then feed, equip, and move across the empire constantly. Yep. The system of taxation was also wholly insufficient, which is a thing we just don't have time to get into. But basically, every like section of the empire collected its own taxes and no one was really overseeing it. And it was ah, inefficient nice. in yeah. the extreme. Let's also not forget that Caracalla had raised the troops pay to mm -hmm. a ridiculous amount. And Macrinus had was killed for attempting to lower that <laughs> pay. It is still that high decades later. There were also bronze coins, which were so valueless by the time of Gallienus that they basically stopped being produced. Kind of like how we have pennies and nickels that like, mm -hmm. who, so why, why are we making these anymore? Yeah. To top all these issues off, counterfeit currency was rampant and doing nothing to help the inflation problem. It should also be noted that this counterfeiting wasn't just random criminals a lot of the time. It was the mint workers, as we just saw. Mm -hmm. They were making cheap coins and profiting the, uh, pocketing the profit. This helped lead to those mint revolts. While Aurelian sorted things out in Rome, he set about the first step of his monetary reform. This was basically a stopgap plan to hold everything together while he sorted all the other 
important issues out. It was essentially an administrative overhaul of the mint system with the main mint moving from Rome to Milan and a couple new mints being set up in the Balkans, which is where Aurelian often was. This way he could pay his troops more efficiently. Standards and policies were updated to raise the quality of coins, primarily the silver ones. With these basic steps in place and the mints running a bit more smoothly, Aurelian turned his attention to his next project because it had just become much more urgent. So we've been doing this show long enough now, and I've already been alluding to it. Um, but you should be able to answer this question. Where <sighs> is the breadbasket of Italy? It's in Egypt. It is. Egypt was how Rome ate, mm-hmm. and there were problems there. Yes. Hence the camels. Maybe. <laughs> we. So you will recall that last time, the eastern provinces were essentially under the control of the king of Palmyra, Odonathus. Gallienus had, quote unquote, allowed... Odonathus to effectively run the East as a client state. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Gallienus was in no position to stop Odonathus if he chose to be independent. Near the end of Gallienus's reign, I mentioned that Odonathus was murdered, probably in 268. Stories of his death are wide and varied, ranging from a nephew who was offended during a hunt, then murdering Odonathus and his heir, all the way to Gallienus attempting to destabilize the region so that he could come oh. in and conquer i don't believe I that one that. i don't believe that whatever the truth is if the person who wanted odonathus dead hoped that palmyra would crumble with him they did not account for his wife oh boy i mentioned her last time and said to remember her name zenobia mm-hmm. zenobia had been alongside her husband through his long climb to the rank of king of kings she had also borne him born him a son one that we are certain of at least but the sources mention others as well Odonathus had risen to the top on account of his skills, personality, and military victories. That would not be an easy thing to hold together as some widow. Mm -hmm. But Zenobia was clever and quick. She immediately claimed the titles of King of Palmyra and King of Kings for her son, as well as the title Corrector Totius Orientis, which was an honorary title granted by Gallienus, which she really didn't have any authority to give to her son. Titles are important, right? and that title came from the emperor. Yeah. Still, it worked locally, and the people were very pleased. During 269, while Claudius and Aurelian were tied up fighting the Goths in Thrace, Zenobia was consolidating her position. Many people of the region were all on board with her taking over after her husband, but not everyone. A small confederation of Arab peoples stood to oppose her authority, and so the gloves were off. As Watson puts it, quote, she was fully conscious that she possessed the military might to back her claim. By 270, she was ready to solidify her power and so ordered her troops into Roman Arabia to, quote, put down this uprising while also expanding her influence. The Dukes of Arabia recognized what was happening and attempted to march his legion against her. He and his army were destroyed. Nice. With Arabia quickly secured, Zenobia turned her attention to the next obvious objective, Egypt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This would be the play that would decide how well this new Palmyrene empire could stand. If they could take Egypt from Rome, they would be in an amazing position and Rome would be very weakened. A man called Probus, and no, not the famous one some of you might be thinking about, was in charge of the military in Egypt. However, he was away at this time dealing with those naval invasions of the islands of the eastern Mediterranean that I mentioned. The Goths and Heruli mm-hmm, were mm-hmm. invading all over the place. With him away and news that Claudius had suddenly died, Zenobia ordered her generals to push their advantage. 
A trader within Egypt turned his coat and sided with the invaders, wiping out the small garrison station near Alexandria. When Probus heard of the situation, he rushed back to Egypt with his forces. They were able to slowly push the Palmyrene troops back, but the enemy had a lot of support from the local population, and soon the tides turned. Alexandria was soon lost again. Probus made a decent stand in a good defensive position, but was soon taken by surprise and hit from behind. With this defeat, Rome lost Egypt and Italy lost its food. Yeah, that's real bad. Not good. Really, really bad. At the same time, Zenobia was flexing her political influence on those in the north and west of Palmyra, Palmyra being in the middle of Syria. Many Roman officials were either convinced or coerced into joining the new empire. Within months, almost all of Anatolia was under Zenobia's sphere of influence. Dang. The one place she could not find support, however, was Chalcedon in Bithynia, which is in northwestern Anatolia and is the spot people and armies used to cross the Bosphorus from Greece to Anatolia, basically where uh, Constantinople will be eventually. They were not having Zenobia's pitch, likely because Aurelian was not so very far away from them. Within a few short years of her husband's sudden death, Zenobia had taken her client kingdom and expanded it into a rival empire that could reasonably go toe-to-toe with Rome and Persia. She worked hard to respect the various religious, political, and ethnic groups so as to keep as many people as happy as possible. And it worked. That's a good... I mean, that's a fairly good plan. Yep. Keep my people happy, respect their traditions, let's get along together, have a good life. Destroy Rome. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Sounds good. So all of this is going on and causing panic back in Rome. This helped lead to the mint riots and forced Aurelian to rework the financial system and the food dole. He, like Gallienus, could not immediately respond to the happenings in the east, though. Mm-hmm. So do you recall that Claudius and Aurelian had been fighting the Goths when Claudius died? Yeah. And then Aurelian came back to put down the civil war and then a couple other invasions. Yeah. Never finished the Goths. Yeah. And when he came back to Rome, they marched right back in. I'm assuming, yeah. So I'm pretty sure that Aurelian, who had been fighting up there for years now on and off, was probably fed up. Mm -hmm. He organized his forces in Italy and marched northeast again, this time with his sights on ending the Gothic menace once and for all. He arrived in the region and quickly defeated the barbarians, forcing them to tuck tail and run back across the Danube. But there would be no escape this time. Aurelian pursued them across the river and found further success. He utterly crushed the enemy army once again, this time killing their king and capturing many women who had also come out to fight off the Romans. Hmm. He may have also found a very nice chariot at this point. (laughs) This victory should not be understated as is considered one of the most important battles of the crisis period along the Danube. Well, yeah, he's finally like, no, enough. I need to crush you. Please die or leave. As was his way. Aurelian took a moment after this win to assess how they had gotten here and what could be done to prevent this continued onslaught. The problem was that Dacia, the Roman province across the Danube, Mm -hmm. was just too difficult to defend. Yes. Trajan had conquered Dacia over 160 years earlier, despite Augustus's assertion that the empire should remain within the natural borders of the Rhine, Danube, and Euphrates. This meant that Romans had to man a massive land border rather than the much shorter, much more defensible river border. Mm -hmm. While the Dacian gold mines had been a boon for nearly two centuries, they were pretty much empty now, and Aurelian felt that this province was more hindrance than advantage. So what do you think he did? 
hopefully he's like, hey, let's just pull out of there. Just set up a defense on the other side of the river here where you can precisely solidify that. Yep, exactly. He complete pull out of Dacia. He uh, would make a new Dacia on the other Mm, side. So we didn't lose a province. We We moved moved it. it. Just moved it. So he was going to need to take as many troops as he possibly could out east to fight Palmyra. Mm-hmm. So let's make a shorter border. We'll put some barbarians on that border, too, to help protect it. And then I can go do what I need to do. Bear in mind that this was a monumental feat of organization. It would be like giving up Washington state and moving most of the influential people and troops into Oregon while Canada was an ever-present threat. Nice. A little difficult to imagine, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, that's pretty much what it would be. It would take a lot to achieve that. Pragmatic to a fault, Aurelian had done more to secure the Danube border than any crisis emperor so far. The defeated Goths were then allowed to live in the vacated province to form a buffer state. And if you recall, quite a while ago before they conquered Dacia, Dacia had been that buffer state. Yeah. They had been a client kingdom or at least friendly yeah, for yeah, most yeah. of their existence. And with that, Aurelian turned his gaze east and prepared for his confrontation with Zenobia. So... Two principal objectives when attacking Palmyra. One, recover the important provinces of Asia Minor and Egypt and then Syria. Finally, remove Zenobia and her Palmyrene line in order to prevent this power base from rising up again. Pretty simple. Just two things we got to do. Yeah, the idea, sure. Yeah. Simple. (laughs) Yeah. So the first issue with these goals is that Asia Minor and Egypt were separated by the Mediterranean by sea Mm -hmm. and Syria by land. This meant two fronts would be needed. It was decided that a naval expedition would land in Egypt to secure the grain supply for Italy. This force would be led by a man called Probus. Oh. When one Probus fails to take Egypt back, you send send in another one. That's right. And yes, this is the Probus (laughs) some of you might have been thinking of earlier. While Probus sailed to Egypt, Aurelian began his march east. He crossed the Bosphorus into Asia Minor, thanks province for not going to the enemy side so I could cross easily. And began his steady progression. Now, we know little of Probus's expedition, and it is questionable if it was actually led by the future emperor Probus. We'll say it was. The fleet landed in mid-May, and by early June had successfully retaken Alexandria. By the end of June, Egypt was firmly back under Roman control. The whole operation had taken a matter of weeks. So that was huge. Aurelian also found great success in these opening weeks. As he moved east through Anatolia, he found almost every city more than happy to open their gates and admit their emperor. No hard feelings. We'd like to come back into the fold, please, and thank you. Mm-hmm. Aurelian was enjoying this great success until he reached the city of Tiana in south-central Asia Minor. Here he met his first real resistance. The people refused to let him in, causing Aurelian's temper to flare. He proclaimed to his men that, once they took the city, they would not leave even a dog alive. Oh, my. And with that, a siege set in. Yeah. The siege was not long enough to halt their overall progress, but it was long enough to be annoying. Then, according to the Historia Augusta, a local in the town snuck out and told Aurelian of a weakness in the defenses that he could exploit. Naturally. So, how do you think things played out when the city finally fell? Uh, chaos. Lots of murder. Lots of murder. Lots of murder. Yeah. Well, Aurelian with more insight than most military leaders in history, decided to show clemency and leniency. He ordered his men not to sack the city. Smart. We don't have time for this. We probably use these resources. Thank you. 
Well, this naturally irritated the men who had been God. gearing up for a good old fashioned looting. And yeah. wait, didn't didn't Aurelian didn't he just say we wouldn't even leave a dog alive? Mm-hmm. Like, is he what what is this? So things looked dangerous as the men got themselves worked up into a tissy. Many a military leader had lost his head when trying to rein in his men. Yeah, these stupid, angry fucking warmongers. <laughs> yes. Well, in fact, Posthumus, the emperor of Gaul, who we'll go back to in a bit, uh, was already dead by this point, murdered by his troops oh. when he wouldn't let them loot a captured city. Oh. So Aurelian had good reason to be nervous. There was no option but to speak to his men. Mm-hmm. He called them to circle around in the camp and said... I did indeed decree that no dog should be allowed to live. Well then, kill all the dogs. Much to everyone's relief, the men got a hearty chuckle out of this. And they were like, okay. (laughs) And the town did not get sacked. And even better, Aurelian wasn't stabbed a million times. Right, yes. This clemency turned out to be a 1,000 IQ play on Aurelian's part. Other towns and cities along his path to Syria heard of his light-handed approach and decided it would just be best to open their gates. Mm Mm-hmm. He had he slaughtered the city, it is likely that more would have opposed him. Yeah. Soon, all of Asia Minor was back under imperial control. Nice. With Asia Minor and Egypt secured, Syria and Zenobia were next on the to-do list. Zenobia and her generals were preparing for Aurelian's arrival and had fortified Antioch against his approach. The terrain around the city was heavily, also heavily favored the Palmyrenes. The flatlands allowed their heavily armored cavalry, known as cataphracts, we've seen them before, to move freely and act as the ancient tanks that they were. Recognizing this, Aurelian did not move straight in and avoided fighting the enemy in open battle. Instead, he moved around toward the hilly eastern side of the city, hoping to negate the enemy cavalry. But the enemy general was alerted to Aurelian's movement and sent the full might of his cavalry out to reinforce his men guarding that flank. Aurelian soon found himself facing off against the cataphracts and had to think quickly. The land was far too flat for his infantry to stand up against the armored horse regiments, so the old cavalry commander fell back on what he knew. His own cavalry rushed forward to intercept the cataphracts. The Palmyrene troops were giddy at the prospect. Mm -hmm. Clearly, this light cavalry was no match for them, and they were correct. As soon as the Roman horse got close, they balked and turned to run away. It looked like a full rout might soon follow if nothing was done. The cataphracts charged, hoping to crush their enemy in one blow. But the light horses were swifter and managed to stay at range. After a short while, the cataphracts gave up the chase to rest and hopefully attack the infantry lines now that the cavalry was gone. Joke's on you. Right. But then the Roman cavalry whirled around and charged once more. But this newfound confidence did not last. The cataphracts were slower than the Romans, sure, but they were highly trained and managed to regroup and turn to face the charge before it could send them into disarray. Once again, the Romans dared not clash head on with the armored horsemen, so they booked it. Mm-hmm. Renewed by this cowardice, the cataphracts gave chase once more. Ah. And so there the game we went on. Yeah. Um, did I mention that it's uh, early June in Syria? No. Very hot. <laughs> yeah. Soon, the heavily armored men and horses found themselves utterly exhausted. They're really far away thirsty from their friends. and alone. Yeah. It was probably around this time that they realized the trap they had sprung, because now the Roman cavalry was actually charging. <laughs> to oh, quote no. Watson again, quote, the slaughter was terrible. 
Those palmyrenes who were not cut to pieces in the saddle were thrown from their mounts and trampled to death. Nice. As much by their own horses as under the hooves of the Roman cavalry. Few survivors made it back to Antioch. It should not be understated how brilliant of a play this was. It took an insane level of skill, discipline, and coordination to keep his own cavalry safe and to countercharge at the precise moment that they did. Aurelian had been promoted to cavalry commander for a reason, and here we can see that reason clearly. Also, I uh, don't think I ever mentioned how old Aurelian is. So Correct. to give you context, he became emperor at about 55. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he's, a, he's an older man. He's a but seasoned not gentleman. Yeah, exactly. This victory, while significant, was not the end of the war. The no. Palmyrenes the Palmyre, uh, the, the still held an advantage in overall cavalry numbers even after this crushing defeat. They could not hope to continue holding Antioch, however, and plans were quickly made to evacuate Zenobia and the army. The problem was that the people of Antioch would not be happy to see the Palmyrene army just walking away and leaving them to Aurelian's wrath. So the lead general came up with a ruse. They dressed a man up in Roman officer's armor and paraded him around the city, claiming to have captured Aurelian alive. Oh, boy. The people cheered and felt a great sense of relief that their army or their enemy had been defeated. That night, the general, Zenobia, and the entire Palmyrene army left, slipped out of Antioch. It's <laughs> like, hey, guys, we did it. Hey, we're, you're so safe right now. We got to go. Ah! We got to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't good. So they made a run from Antioch to Emesa, and many who had sided with Zenobia at Antioch fled the city, fearing retribution. Mm -hmm. Aurelian learned of Zenobia's flight the next day and quickly marched into the city. He was received with great fanfare and did what he had done before, issuing a general pardon for all those who had been coerced into joining the enemy of Rome. Obviously, the wonderful people of Antioch had switched sides under duress. That's right. Those who had fled the city soon returned, happy to hear Aurelian's reputation of amnesty was, in fact, real. Aurelian had to spend some time in Antioch before giving chase to his enemies. The city was one of the wealthiest and most powerful in the empire and had spent a long time under Palmyrene control. The mint needed some work, as did many administrative functions. There was also some religious unrest with the local Christians that needed sorting. Um, and I just realized that I never put it in my actual notes. So there's an interesting tidbit about Aurelian here on this. So there was some kind of dispute with, I believe, a man named Peter. And if I'm wrong about that, I'm sorry. But he was a, a Christian priest or something. And he had been... He pissed a lot of people off. Mm -hmm. I can't remember, but the church was mad at Peter and Aurelian is the first emperor to ever personally get involved in the church's affairs and oh. like help rule on that situation. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I didn't put that in my notes. I just realized that, but that is what the local Christian unrest was. One of the most important obstacles to overcome before the Romans could march on a Mesa was the small force left behind to stop Aurelian at Daphne. The problem was the steep terrain and the strong position the enemy occupied. But Aurelian decided that his infantry could do with some action and decided on a full frontal assault of this entrenched position. He sent his men in the famous Testudo Formation, oh. where they held their shields over their heads and marched steadily up the hill toward the enemy. Rocks and arrows bounced harmlessly off as the legionaries made slow progress. Once they were upon the enemy, the legions did what they did best, dominated in close quarter fighting. While this was going on, a steady stream of reinforcements was also marching into Antioch. Soon Aurelian was confident in his position and marched out toward Emesa to crush Zenobia and her forces. 
As Aurelian and his men approached Emesa, they encountered the whole of the Palmyrene army. Mm. Some sources claim this force was 70,000 strong, and the plains around Emesa were the perfect terrain for their remaining cataphracts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Aurelian attempted to employ, employ the same tactic as before, forcing the heavy cavalry to give chase and wear themselves out. But he seems to have miscalculated this time. It is likely he did not expect quite so many cataphracts to still be in play. On top of this, his men were probably tired from their hard march during which the Palmyrenes had just been kind of sitting and waiting. Whatever the case, the cataphracts got a bit too close to the Roman cavalry and things started to go wrong quickly. Many Roman horsemen were cut off and cut down, turning what had been a feigned retreat into almost a complete rout. The infantry began to fall back, fearing the heavily armored horsemen that would soon be upon them. Mm-hmm. The Palmyrene infantry then rushed forward, seeing their enemy in flight. They lost their discipline and their formation soon fell apart as they sprinted towards the Romans. But the Romans are nothing if not disciplined fighters, Mm -hmm. especially under Aurelian, as we will see. As the overconfident Palmyrenes rushed headlong at them, the legions did an about face and set their lines. The enemy infantry was soundly defeated, and those who survived the initial fight soon found themselves trampled to death either by their fellow infantrymen or the cataphracts. It was a resounding victory for the Romans and essentially ended any hopes the Palmyrenes had of defending Emesa. Zenobia quickly called a war council, but it was clear that all hope was lost. Their only option now would be to hightail it back to Palmyra, which was an oasis in the desert, and hope to withstand whatever Aurelian threw at them. There was no time to discuss, however. Aurelian was rapidly approaching the city, and Zenobia was forced to drop everything and flee. She even left behind her treasury, which Aurelian was nice. all too happy to pick up. <laughs> like, oh, cool, free money? I can use that. Hey, troops, you still wanted to be paid, right? All right, here you go. Perfect. Continue forward. <laughs> Aurelian did not hesitate to give chase. He marched his men across the desert in pursuit of his prey, enduring the heat of the summer and the constant attacks of the local Arab tribesmen who harassed the column as they went. Mm-hmm. Once his army arrived at the oasis city, he laid siege and set about reaching out to the locals to ensure his supply lines would be secure. Obviously, it's very hard to feed and water troops in the middle of a desert. Right. But the local Bedouin population was all too happy to supply him with what he needed, much to Zenobia's shock and mm-hmm. horror. Mm-hmm. Her cause seemed hopeless now. The, their army was in shambles, and the Romans were not likely to starve or run out of water before the Palmyrenes did. Zenobia's only hope at this point was to turn to Rome's ancient enemy. It has been kind of nice not needing to talk about Persian invasions for a while. It seems like they couldn't help but march in whenever things were getting shaky for the Romans. But our old friend Shapur was now actually our old friend. He's like, nah. Well, his his regime had ruled since his father's death 30 years earlier. Oh, okay. In 270, Shapur died. So this is right around the time Aurelian became Mm -hmm. emperor, leaving a much less stable Sassanid empire to his son, who lasted just over a year. His successor would only last a couple years as well. Jeez. So very unstable. Lots of unrest. The mighty Sassanid Empire was struggling just as much as the Romans now, but Zenobia had no choice but to treat with them and ask for assistance. But there were Persian mercenaries already in this war, as one would expect. Mm -hmm. Aurelian had some crack archers from Persia, and one story comes from the siege of Palmyra that I find quite funny. A soldier was up on the wall harassing Aurelian one day, just calling down mean things at him, showing his bum, you know, those types of things. A Persian archer approached Aurelian and said, 
I could make him stop if you'd like. <laughs> and Aurelian consented. So, sure. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I'd love to see it. <laughs> the archer moved forward with several infantrymen to provide him cover with their shields. The man on the wall continued his mockery until he looked down and found an arrow shaft protruding from his chest. Yeah. He then stumbled forward and fell off the wall before the Romans. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. Zenobia, by this point, felt she had no choice. The Persians were not answering. So she's yeah. like, I'm going to go in person oh, and talk to them. Okay. She dipped out of the city and made a break for it on camelback. Hey, there we go. There we go. Camels. Yep. Aurelian caught wind of this quickly and sent his cavalry in hot pursuit. She was just about to cross the Euphrates into Persia when the mm -hmm. Romans caught mm -hmm. up. And took her into custody. The people remaining in Palmyra were in two camps when they learned their queen had been captured. One group wanted to fight it out because they were either stupid or crazy. Right. The other group wanted to get in on that clemency action they had heard so much about and offer peace. While this debate went on, several on the let's surrender side went to the walls and called down to Aurelian to be like, so peace. Mm -hmm. we, we want peace. Yeah. Aurelian encouraged this and promised, promised leniency to those who gave up. Slowly, those who wanted it all to end went out and surrendered to the emperor. They brought gifts and sacrifices to appease their new liege. When others inside saw that Aurelian was not slaughtering those who came out, they all started to give in. Aurelian entered Palmyra. As promised, the general populace was not punished for Zenobia's crimes. This amnesty did not extend to the ringleaders of Palmyra's rise, however. Aurelian viewed this Palmyrene Empire, quote-unquote, as nothing more than a revolt against Rome, which is fair. Sure. And treason could not go unpunished. Advisors and generals were rounded up for trial. Fearing future problems, Aurelian also tore down some of the defenses of the city, just in case he needed to come back. Next, he looked around the city for anything and everything he could take as reparations for this very expensive war. The citizens had offered a lot of wealth during their surrender, but that would not be sufficient. Treasures from temples and state houses were rounded up and taken away. Mm -hmm. Aurelian may also have been worried about how the Persians would respond. Obviously, she was Zenobia was going to ask them to bring an army in. After all, his forces were tired and depleted after constant warfare since he became emperor. Perhaps they would march in and take advantage like they always did. But when envoys from Persia arrived to see what the hell was happening, they brought with them the most beautiful and vibrant purple cloak as a show of good faith. Nice. Aurelian then twisted the message about this victory to make it sound less like a civil war, because you don't celebrate triumphs for civil wars. Mm -hmm. We defeated the Persians out east here because it was their fault that Palmyra, oh boy. you know, kind of one hmm. of those, hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. So nice I'm Persicus Maximus now. I mean, to be fair, it kind of... Like, I don't think I would totally classify it as a civil war. It's a, it's an interesting one. Cause it, cause weren't they, weren't they just, uh, they weren't part of Rome, like where Palmyra started. It was just like a, like Palmyra, a Palmyra was a Roman city. Oh, okay. It was definitely, it was in the middle of the, Syria, which is the, 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 the lady. What's her name? Zenobia, Zenobia where mm -hmm. she started. Weren't they just like a city state or something? So they were a city within the empire. Okay. For a long time. And then became very, very powerful under Odonathus. And then essentially it was like, oh, you're the only one who can actually protect the East. What are you? You're a client yeah, state. Yeah, the client state. Yeah. But they so. had been. Yeah. It was kind of it's very weird because yeah. like. Um, Definitely wasn't a standard civil war. That's right. For sure. Right. And they'd been away for a long time, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like Posthumus and them, it's very clearly a revolt yeah. and a separate empire. But once Zenobia 
started attacking Roman provinces, it did kind of become more official. It's a very weird one. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. So Aurelian then left the region in the capable hands of a man called Marcellinus and left a small garrison in Palmyra. He did not wish to make it look like a full military occupation, but he feared a second uprising if no troops remained. Sure. Zenobia and her co-conspirators were marched back to Emesa, where they stood trial. Most of them were found guilty of conspiracy against the empire and executed. Zenobia herself was spared, but not because she was innocent or because she was a woman or anything like that. It was because he really wanted her for his triumph. Oh, I just want to show her off. <laughs> yes. Before that humiliation, however, she was to face several other forms of humiliation around Syria. She was paraded through streets of cities uh, through which they had passed while seated atop a one-humped camel, which apparently was an insult. Got him. <laughs> then in Antioch, she was placed on top of a pillar in the Hippodrome, which gave me images of Star Wars Episode Two oh, when they're all yeah, chained up. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aurelian had claimed a title for himself before he marched east. Restitutor Orientis, Restorer of the East. Sure. Now this title truly carried real weight. Mm -hmm. he, picked some, uh, he picked something else up while he was out east as well. The idea of a new religion. Oh. Sun gods have been popular across pretty much every ancient civilization. Mm -hmm. Rome was no exception. And we even saw Elagabalus yeah. attempted to make his oh, eastern sun god Elagabal the chief deity of the empire, mm -hmm. which had not gone well. <laughs> The sun god Aurelian fell in love with was called Sol Invictus, which means the unconquered sun, which is pretty cool. Emperors have often associated themselves with specific gods to highlight their personal qualities. The time he spent in Syria helped solidify Aurelian's position that he would closely associate his reign with Sol. There are some theories that Sol is El Gabel, but a lot of people don't believe that. It's a Historia Augusta thing. Oh. Yeah. But anyway, we don't really know which god this is. As the carts of precious jewels and artifacts trundled along back toward Rome, he was already imagining where he could place them all in his new temple. That's right. Aurelian's forces and captives made their way back west. Along the way, one of the ships carrying the Palmyrene prisoners sank. How very sad. Oh, no. Unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. But soon the party arrived at Byzantium and Aurelian could finally take a breather. Until someone walked in and told him that the Carpi were poking across the Danube and had been causing problems in the abandoned province of Dacia since he had left. Always. <sighs> Always. <laughs> so Aurelian did what Aurelian does and went out to sort them out. We don't know much about this campaign other than that it was short, sweet, and successful. He then settled many of the barbarians on lands along the Danube, once again hoping to add a buffer so future tribes could not so easily cross and destroy things. Can you guys just stop, please? Mm-hmm. It is right around this time that Aurelian got some very frustrating news. Palmyra was once again in revolt. Oh, my God. The man Aurelian had left in charge, Marcellinus, had been approached by the conspirators and asked if he was up for a little treason. He had played along to save his own life mm. and then risked it all by sending word to the emperor. Oh. Yeah. Aurelian was furious. He had just marched hundreds of miles away from that yeah. cursed city in the middle of the <laughs> yeah. desert. And now he had to march right back and march. He did. His men must have hated it as they were forced to force march back to Palmyra as quickly as possible because he needed to get there very quickly to nip this in the bud before it blew up. He made it back so quickly, in fact, that the Palmyrenes did not even notice he was coming until he arrived. Just showed up there like, okay, who's revolting? Yeah. Just knocked on the door at yeah. the gates. And they're like, oh, who's? Oh. Huh. <laughs> As it turned out, they had killed 600 men 
left to garrison the city and proclaimed a young boy as king. Now, this boy may or may not have been a son of Zenobia. We don't know. Aurelian laid siege once again, but this time it would be easier. He had weakened their defenses, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there were plenty of people in the city who still felt that they should not be revolting. There was that whole half of the yeah. city who wanted peace in the first place. This faction may have even reached out to Aurelian to help him breach the city sooner. It did not take long before the rebels were put down. The leaders of this new conspiracy were rounded up and probably executed on the spot. Hopefully. Much to Aurelian's credit, however, he did not do what many ancient leaders would have done. He did not slaughter the populace and let his men rape and kill anything and everything. But the city itself would not be left unmolested. Anything of value that had not been taken during the last occupation was stripped. Then the city was torn apart piece by piece. Aurelian watched as the city fell, frustrated beyond belief, but hopeful that this would be the end of it. Mm Mm-hmm. The Romans packed up their things and once again began their long journey back west. Now, Palmyra would never recover from this sacking, ever. The ancient trade city would remain a husk of ruins, and those few inhabitants would remain few. The east was now truly restored. Oh, except for the revolt in Egypt. It's almost like we forgot this is the crisis period. (laughs) So Aurelian dipped down through Syria into Egypt to put down this little uprising. It was very small by comparison to what we have seen before. But as always, Egypt cannot be in enemy hands. It just doesn't work. Yeah, we need the supply. Exactly. And then finally, finally, Aurelian made it back to Rome with his treasures and his captives. He rode through one of the newly completed gates, which adorned his walls which were shaping up nicely. They were not completed yet, but many miles of sturdy fortifications now encircled much of the city. The celebrations were spectacular, and everyone knew that soon there would be a triumph. Mm -hmm. But not yet. Once back in the capital, and able to consider the bigger picture, Aurelian turned his attention back to the issue of the economy. We won't go into deep dive of this reform because it's a lot of numbers about weights and percentages, but we don't need to discuss any of that. The point is this. Let's make better, more standardized coins and exchange them for the crappy ones that are floating around. This helped the immediate issue of the silver coin being debased beyond mm-hmm. belief. With the silver coin now functioning, now a functioning currency again, the bronze coin came back into use and had three denominations of its own that had gone away uh, under Gallienus. So the economy is good enough that the lower end currency is usable again. He also continued his overhaul of the mint system as a whole. As mentioned, he set up two mints in the Balkans, which made it easier to keep the troops near the frontier paid. Aurelian had also been recapturing mints that had been outside imperial control for years at this point. Alexandria and Antioch had been under Palmyrian control for some time, and he also set up several new mints throughout his reign. As he set up more of these mints and moved some from one city to another, he increased production significantly. He had 60% more mints working for him than Gallienus did, mm. and the purity and consistently was significantly higher. While working on the economy, Aurelian also set in motion his plans for the new temple to Seoul. The foundations were soon laid and construction was underway. There are some who take Aurelian's push for Seoul to be an indicator of the Roman pantheon moving towards monotheism. Mm. This is not true at all. Aurelian, unlike Elagabalus, did not attempt to put Sol above the other gods, and is certainly not above Jupiter, who is kind of the closest to a top god they had. It is noted that many priests of the cult of Sol were priests of other cults as well. There does not appear to have been any tension with Aurelian aligning himself spiritually with Sol. 
He was just another god in the imperial cult to whom Aurelian placed his trust and faith. It would appear that the emperor truly believed his success in the East had come from Sol's influence. And I mean, the sun did bake those cataphracts for yeah, him. Yeah, I was like, it's so real hot out, so you know. It was. Things were going well. The uprisings were settling, and there hadn't been a barbarian invasion in a couple of days. <laughs> but uh, Aurelian was still not fully pleased. The people were waiting for the massive triumph they knew he was planning. I mean, obviously, he's planning a triumph. What, what are we waiting for? They hadn't had proper reason to throw a party in a long time, so why are we not doing that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What could be bothering Aurelian at this moment that would prevent him from holding his triumph? What task is still incomplete? The Goths. The Gauls. Gauls. <laughs> you were about close. to say the Gallic Empire. So the empire was still not fully unified. He had restored the East, which was probably the most important, but the West was and had been in enemy hands for over a decade by this point. Mm -hmm. So let's roll back the clock once again and catch up what has been going on in the Gallic Empire. Last time we saw Posthumus was under Claudius's reign. He was having some classic crisis issues of his own when one of his generals revolted and Claudius opted to let that play out while Claudius went East to help Aurelian with the Goths. There are several theories why the Goth Gallic Empire became unstable. Last time, we saw that Posthumus was able to produce higher quality coins than Gallienus thanks to his control of the Spanish mints, but that appears to have changed around the time of Gallienus's death. There were also many in the Gallic military who felt Posthumus had missed his opportunity to strike when Aurelius had revolted because Aurelius had not risen up as emperor. He said, I stand with Posthumus, mm -hmm. and then Posthumus had done nothing. So, Posthumus was dealing with the same issues of the regular emperors by this point, an unhappy army and debased currency. And so, shortly after Gallienus' death, Posthumus had his own pretender to deal with. He acted quickly and soon defeated his rival, but then he made a grave mistake, which I mentioned earlier. He told his men not to sack the city where this general had taken refuge. The troops were none too pleased and murdered their emperor. They raised up a man called Marius, who lasted all of about a few weeks before also being killed by the soldiers. In his place came a man who had served a consulship alongside Posthumus, a man called Victorinus, which is a pretty cool name. Some provinces in the Gallic Empire lost confidence after Posthumus' death. Primarily, these were the Spanish provinces, all of which switched sides and rejoined Claudius' empire. Hmm. That means that by the time Aurelian came to power, he had Spain back, which yeah. is huge. One region in Gaul also switched back to the main empire, but soon found themselves at Victorinus's mercy. So they turned coat, but uh, no one was there to protect them, and Victorinus sought his revenge. He besieged their city as they called out to Claudius for help. But as we saw, Claudius was very preoccupied during his short reign and could not spare the resources for an invasion of Gaul at that moment. Instead, he had stationed some troops along the Alpine passes in Italy to uh, make sure that Victorinus didn't mm -hmm. come into Italy. To draw a line. <laughs> yep. The siege of this city dragged on for months before they finally fell. Having learned from Posthumus' errors, Victorinus gave his men free reign to loot and pillage as much as they wanted. The sacking was so vicious that the scars were well remembered a generation later. Mm -hmm. Then Claudius died, and Aurelian went on his way fighting barbarians and palmyrenes in the east. Meanwhile, Victorinus was busy boinking his officers' wives, which eventually led one of the men to murder him. <laughs> yeah. 
short version of that. Yeah. In stepped Tetricus, who would be the one in charge when Aurelian returned from the east victorious. It speaks volumes that Aurelian opted to march out to the east to Syria with Tetricus at his rear. Clearly, he did not fear the Gallic Empire. Mm-hmm. For nearly 15 years, the Gallic Empire had been separated from Rome, and a stalemate had ensued since Gallienus had taken that arrow in the back and abandoned his attempts to destroy Posthumus, the man who had killed his son. Mm-hmm. The decision for both sides to leave the other alone came about for a variety of reasons. I mean, the thing that's most notable about the Gallic Empire is that they're the first, uh, hey, I'm a new emperor who didn't want to take over the whole empire. Yeah, they said, this I just, is mine. I just want this over here. This, this space is now mine. And that's part of why they lasted so long, because there was not a no one wanted to fight to settle that score because Mm -hmm. there was too much other fighting going on. It had been most efficient to keep the two empires separate so they could deal with the Alamanni and Franks. I almost said Franks whenever they encroached upon either empire. This honestly made it easier for Gallienus, Claudius, Posthumus and Aurelian to deal with the various crises they faced, which is something some upcoming emperors will have noticed. Mm hmm. But Aurelian had resolved most of his crises. The Goths had been put down for the moment, and the East was the securest it had been since Valerian had been captured. Now it was time to march against the traitors who had left the empire. Tetricus had been doing well for a couple years by this point. His Rhine legions had fought off the Franks yet again, and he had made his young son Caesar to help secure his line. But then one of his governors went and revolted, leaving Tetricus on very shaky ground. And Aurelian pounced like a cat on a mouse. As Watson puts it, quote, The outcome of the approaching conflict between Tetricus and Aurelian looked increasingly predictable. For Tetricus, there were not the best, these were not the best of circumstances in which to face the advance of Aurelian's well-disciplined and victorious army. And that army was coming. Tetricus attempted to stand against Aurelian at a place called Shalon in northeastern Gaul. The battle was intense, with the highly experienced Rhine legions facing off against Aurelian's veterans. The deciding factor was Aurelian's generalship, which was far superior to that of Tetricus. At some point during the battle, Tetricus was captured. This sent shockwaves through the ranks, and soon the lines were breaking. Aurelian's forces pushed their advantage, and the carnage was so gruesome that it was remembered by the legions for many years to come. Aurelian had won the day, but... It was at immense cost. Defeating the Rhine legions and slaughtering many of them was not to Aurelian's advantage. Who would defend the frontier after the reunification? This victory was great in the short term, but you can't just replace men, Mm -hmm. especially after decades of fighting. Tetricus was shipped back to the capital to sit with Zenobia and await Aurelian's triumph. Aurelian himself spent several months in Gaul helping to reintegrate the administration back into the empire. Now, some might assume that he would gut the regimes of Posthumus and Tetricus, but the contrary is true. Like in the East, Aurelian took the amnesty approach and kept as many people in their posts as possible to ensure the best continuity of government. There are anecdotes about men who began their civic careers under Posthumus becoming highly respected in Aurelian's government and beyond. Once this was handled, and the empire was at long last reunified, Aurelian set out for Rome. Upon his arrival, he was granted the title of Restitutor Orbis, Restorer of the World. Wow. Yeah. Now, Valerian and Gallienus got that title, too. I don't think they deserve it as much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But now, 
Aurelian decided it was time for his triumph. We have seen many triumphs in this show. Many for the last couple of centuries have seemed dubious at best, Mm -hmm. laughable at worst. Since Augustus came to power, only the emperor could celebrate a triumph. This meant any general winning a major war could earn the sitting emperor a triumph for doing Mm. nothing. Yeah. Sometimes you didn't even have to win to get one. You just had to say you won. This was obviously not the case for Aurelian. He was the guy planning and leading these campaigns and battles. And these wars had not been petty squabbles with Persia or unwarranted land grabs. These wars had reunited the shattered empire. And that stability was definitely something worth celebrating. Mm -hmm. And celebrate they did. Yeah. Big old party. (laughs) Big party. Well, we do not have significant detail on these celebrations from anywhere other than the Historia Augusta. Eutropius does tell us that Tetricus and Zenobia were marched before Aurelian's chariots. The Historia Augusta says that he had three chariots, one owned by Odonathus, Zenobia's late husband, one which was a gift from the Persians, probably like, please don't invade us. Mm-hmm, like, you're mm-hmm. doing great. Just yeah. please uh, <laughs> take this robe that we sent and a uh, chariot and enjoy your triumph. Great mm-hmm, job. Mm-hmm. And then one that had been made for Zenobia. But then a fourth chariot entered the city bearing Aurelian himself. This was one captured from the Gothic king that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And it was pulled by four stags. Nice. Tigers, giraffes, and all sorts of other animals were present, and many sacrifices were made. All of that comes from the Historia Augusta, but I thought I'd share. In the past, captured enemy leaders were often strangled to death at the end of triumphs. This is what happened uh, when Caesar had his Vercingetorix um, walked oh, in his, uh, yeah. his triumph after defeating the Gauls. Aurelian did not take this approach, however. Instead, he allowed Tetricus to keep many of his titles and even created a brand new position for him to oversee a territory in Italy itself. This was a very cushy job and showed that Aurelian truly wanted to make amends. Zenobia also got off lightly in the end. She had faced plenty of humiliation, of course, but she and her son were granted a villa and she may have even married a Roman nobleman at some point. It is important to note that Zenobia is by and far the most powerful woman we have seen on this show Mm -hmm, so far. mm -hmm. Where many of the powerful women we have seen were mere background figures to the leading men or boys, Zenobia was the real power behind the the Palmyrene Empire, even if her son was technically king. Sources are very biased against her because they're written by men, but her achievements should not be overlooked. Aurelian then went back to work on religious and monetary reform. He called for construction projects around the border of the empire to improve upon the defenses. And then the great news arrived that his temple for Seoul was completed. Nice. Great celebrations were held at the temple, which was decked out in religious artifacts and treasures from Aurelian's campaigns. This was also the time that he instituted games in honor of Seoul Invictus, which were to be held every four years. But Aurelian was not one for sitting around for long periods of time. He needed a new conquest, a new challenge. And uh, what's an important place to capture if you're a Roman emperor? It's kind of tradition. Oh, man, I forgot the name of the city. But is it was it with Persia? Yeah. Yeah. Tessaphon. There you go. Exactly. Uh, we don't know this for certain, but it would appear that this is when Aurelian began planning his invasion of Persia. Just in the Lord, hey, man, I'm going to take that city. You going to stop? Or? Thanks for the chariot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sounds like you guys are having some trouble. Yeah. And I would really like to get in on some of that action. Dang. 
After all, the Persians had spent nearly 20 years constantly harassing and invading the eastern provinces. The Palmyra pretty much rose up because of mm-hmm. Persia. Mm-hmm. So a little revenge was due. He really wanted to solidify that Persicus Maximus title. Yeah, I guess. But as always, there was trouble around the Balkans because the damn Goths were kicking mm-hmm. up a fuss mm-hmm. again. Ah, So... He headed back to the front and began dealing with this latest inconvenience and preparing for his next campaign. And then Aurelian died. Yep. Dang. Yeah. Poor guy. Yeah. So I've been very careful not to mention any dates. <laughs> That's true. Because <laughs> I'm curious now. How long do you think that all took? I was there was so much war. He did a lot. He did a march back and forth so much. Uh, 12 years. So you guessed <laughs> that he would die in battle after seven years uh-huh. or disease 17 years. Uh-huh. And now you're thinking that this took... Maybe it's been 12. I don't know. It's just so much okay. back and forth. I don't really know how long it took to travel across the empire then. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he reigned from May of 270 okay. to October 275. It's been five years. Five years. How? He did all of that in five years. How did he go back and forth across the entire empire? Very little sitting still. That's wild. Just insane. Yeah, he was crazy. He died around 61. He could have he could have had another decade in him. I mean, that explains that explains why he just wanted more war. Right. He's literally been just on the campaign for his entire yeah. adult life if we assume that he you know joined the military at 20 yeah he's been fighting the crisis for 40 Forever. years yeah his entire yeah. adult life yeah. exactly all right five years that's so much yeah, he did a ton in five years like when you see emperors who who reign for like 20 years and you're like you didn't do anything yeah you just kind of chilled there you and just it, sat there stabilized yeah yeah well let's get into our rounds oh my god departing demise so uh, you might be a bit confused, but I have decided to do Departing Demise first mm-hmm, since mm-hmm. it makes more sense. We, we, we just talked bef- about. Yeah, we, we like we kill the guy off surprisingly and then we take three rounds to mm-hmm. get to tell- talking about it. So <laughs> let's just talk about it. OK, so Aurelian was a successful military man and you don't become a successful military man without handing out discipline from time to mm-hmm. time. As we've seen, he was a harsh disciplinarian. But his men respected him for it, and they had won so much because of it. But being known for being harsh can be a mixed bag. For some in his inner circle might become paranoid, even if they had only committed a minor offense. You know, oh God, what's he going to do now? Mm -hmm. In fact, while Aurelian was in Thrace, probably preparing for an invasion of Persia, but we do not know for sure, one of his personal secretaries, a man called Eros, approached a handful of high-ranking men in the army with a list. Hazard to guess what was on the list? The names of traitors, conspirators, there's the word. Yes, and it happened to be the names of those high-ranking men. Ah, yes. Yes. <laughs> and they were to be arrested and executed. Mm-hmm. We don't actually know what the, the accusation was on this list, but uh, it was enough to scare these people, and it was Aurelian's personal secretary, whose name was also on the list, oh. bringing them that list. Yeah. So now it was like, Oh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well then. So it was clear that they needed to act very quickly. Soon after this meeting, Aurelian was taken unaware by these men when his bodyguards were not close at hand. I mean, he was in the Imperial Army camp, after all. Why would the bodyguards be clinging to him around his loyal subject, his Mm -hmm. loyal soldiers? The men surprised the emperor and stabbed him to death where he stood. Wild. But here's the kicker. 
the list of names was a forgery. Yeah. Uh, and who do you suppose forged the document? I don't know. The guy who wanted to be emperor next. No, the secretary. Oh, he's Eros. <laughs> Eros had apparently done something that he knew could mean his death oh. once Aurelian found out. We don't know exactly what it was, but it may have been a lie that he told. But the fear had gripped him, and so he had set this plot in motion. He knew that killing Aurelian was his only hope of surviving, and he probably didn't think far beyond the actual murder. Yeah. But we will see what happens with him and the other co-conspirators next time. These co-conspirators who quickly learned that they had been duped and woefully regretted their actions yeah, when the truth came out. Murdering the emperor. Yeah. yeah, the very popular, very successful emperor. Yeah, who literally just, like, united Rome again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly what I was going to The man who had reunited the empire yeah. in under five years <laughs> lay dead. Um, so the Roman world wept, and it was not good. Yeah. But we'll get into that next time. We need to decide how many points do you get for being murdered by your loyal men because of a lie mm. in mm. your own camp. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me bring up my wonderful spreadsheet here. Oh, dear Lord. Just write it down. Old school. Departing demise. What do you think? It's more tragic than anything. It is. It's very sad. It's just like, oh, not super interesting. Just like, really? Really? Yeah. I, I'm thinking like the seven or eight. I was going to say six or seven, so I'll go seven. Okay, I'll go eight. All right, that is 15 for Departing Demise, starting off strong. Mastery of Military Might. Ten. You don't have to talk about it. <laughs> just, I mean, just ten. Like, it sounds like, like, like a ten. Five years, under five years, he yeah. did all of this with his armies? Like, yeah. Come on. Well, let's take a quick look. Uh, Aurelian had been a military man his entire adult life, mm -hmm. rose through the ranks and proved himself highly capable. Um... He began right at the beginning of the crisis, so he's been fighting in the worst of the Roman wars probably ever. Mm -hmm. Under Gallienus, he fought off incursions constantly and likely fought against some of the usurpers. Under Claudius, he was the head of the cavalry and did great things in Thrace and against, or in Thrace against the Goths. He then became emperor, saved Italy from the Jathungi, um, got the Danube frontier sorted so well and so quickly that he felt secure enough to go east, where he defeated the Palmyrenes. Um, put down several more revolts, went back to Palmyra. Then he went and defeated the Goths. Few more campaigns with various barbarians and was possibly preparing to invade Persia, which I imagine would have been very successful. He fought all across the empire constantly his whole life and was one of the best of his generation as a cavalry commander and general. Sieges, skirmishes, battles, he can do it all. Rarely lost. Mm -hmm. Ten. 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 Yeah. Now nah, he did it. Yeah. So that is a solid 20 for mastery of military might. He's getting points, man. He is getting points. Terrible tyranny. So he was a strict disciplinarian with his men. This makes sense, as discipline is often what wins battles. Uh, he was apparently very extreme in his enforcement of the rules. Some speculate that this may have played a part in his assassination, as we saw. Ancient sources do not look fondly on Aurelian, mainly because he was a low-level soldier who had become emperor. Their clear evidence for his autocratic tyranny was the execution of several senators after the Mint riots, which we saw. But, like, treason is treason. Yeah. Rising up and attempting to seize the capital is not a light offense. Mm -hmm. So, there are mentions of his cruelty in the sources, but his actions often counter that view. 
he offered amnesty whenever possible, kind of in the vein of Julius Caesar. That was Caesar's thing, mm-hmm, too. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, we're having a civil war. Well, I won. You can come back. Pledge allegiance. Easy. And he only punished and executed those who were in charge of or pushed for rebellion, mm-hmm. which makes sense. He reunited the empire in part because he was so willing to let people back into the fold without a lot of fuss. Case in point, Tetricus. He was essentially a usurper who was holding on to a large chunk of the empire. After his defeat and capture, he was really only subjected to a bit of public humiliation. Beyond that, he was giving a cushy and prestigious position created just for him. Now, there is one other thing. The Christians. As we saw in the last episode, Valerian had decreed a legal persecution of Mm. the Christians who would not adhere to the orders of the imperial cult and make the requisite sacrifices. Gallienus had ended that the moment he became sole ruler and ushered in the little piece of the church that we talked about last time. This piece, according to Christian writers shortly after Aurelian's death, was very nearly broken by the emperor. Watson puts Aurelian's feelings about the Christians very well. So, quote, Aurelian seems to have regarded the refusal of the Christians to honor the gods of Rome and to recognize his own quasi-divinity not only as a threat to society, but as a challenge to his personal authority. Which makes sense in a world where obedience to the emperor was all but a given. What do you mean they won't make the sacrifices? It's not a big deal. Sacrifice to whatever gods you want. That list just must also include the divine emperors and such. But obviously the Christians can't do that and adhere to their faith at the same time. It would seem that Aurelian's sudden death and the confusion that followed put the plans to renew the persecution (laughs) uh, on the back burner. And everyone kind of forgot about it after he died. But it would seem that he planned to renew the persecutions. So I think he probably probably gets a few points for that, but not a ton. I was going to say like a four. Four. Because if it was, even though punishment that was due harsh enough to to make people really scared enough to kill him for right being on a list definitely uh, he also did technically uh uh overthrow uh an emperor that was named by the senate yeah even that, though he, that's dumb yeah, that was yeah. Dumb. <laughs> so you're gonna go with four yeah okay i think i will go with five keep it keep it right around that mid mark because yeah he he wasn't bad but he definitely mm-hmm. seems like a, a harsh guy so that is a total of nine for Terrible Tyranny. He's getting mm-hmm. points. He's getting a lot of points. He's getting some points. Lives of the Living. A quote from uh, Watson once again. In a tireless series of campaigns, he managed to restore a degree of security to the shattered frontiers of the empire. From the perspective of his subjects in such troubled times, this protection was the most crucial benefit the emperor could provide. So we've been in this like constant state of warfare where many people in the empire were genuinely fearful of being murdered by barbarians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he came through and stabilized that mm-hmm. defeated almost everyone that was a threat to the people. Mm-hmm. Along with that quote, we have the big one. Obviously he reunited the empire, reincorporating millions of people into the empire who had been away for years. He then also built the Aurelian walls, which we will look at in more detail in lasting legacy. He also built a new camp for the urban urban cohorts within Rome to help protect them further. He had many other building projects around the empire, mostly to improve defensive capability. As one would expect, Aurelian viewed saving the empire through the lens of a military man. He redesigned the food dole and attempted to fix the broken economy. Though, we'll see, it wasn't quite as successful as one would hope, but 
what can you do? He also pulled the empire out of Dacia as it would as it was seen as too difficult to defend. And since the gold mines had long since dried up, why bother anymore? The cons on this list is pretty short. The economy is getting a little better, but it doesn't do much and it doesn't last. Much of his monetary reforms, while good in theory, simply could not combat the situation. And I don't think that there's anyone who could have. It just it was broken. Mm -hmm. So now we have the question of how we rank this, because in contrast to where things have been, it's a lot better. Sure is. It's still pretty bad, but, you know, that's kind of, you know, you got to look at if if I had been ruling in the golden age when everything was peaceful and great and I made monetary reform, whatever. But if I come in and save the empire and implement reforms to try and make it better and everything just gets, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's more significant. So lasting legacy, I'm, or excuse me, lives of the living. living, I'm thinking pretty high. It's yeah, a great I was, improvement. I was floating around seven or eight because he also threw the first real triumph in a long time. Long time, which would have been great for the people. Mm-hmm. And then the games for Soul mm-hmm. that he set up. Um, he only had the first set of those games, but they're supposed to happen every four years now. Yeah. So, yeah, I was also I was kind of in the between seven and nine. It's tough. It's tough um, because we're still in the crisis. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with eight. I'll go with seven then. That's another 15 for lasting mm-hmm. legacy. This man, I, I can't get my, uh, as soon as I went to put this into my spreadsheet, it logged me out of Google Sheets. Nice. Um, so I can't see the comparison, but I'm feeling like he's going to be one of the highest ranking already. Lasting legacy. So let's start with the obvious. He is the great reuniter of the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, when it looked as if everything was going to completely collapse, he snatched it all back and brought the empire back and s- saved it for a couple centuries. Like this really could have been the end of Rome. Next, the Aurelian walls. Um, Aurelian did not live to see his walls completed, but those walls have seen a lot of history since. And as Watson puts it, quote, the city walls of Rome represent at once both the most emblematic and the most enduring monument of Aurelian's age. Nothing else so eloquently demonstrates that by Aurelian's day, the Roman Empire was now on the defensive. This is not the expanding great empire anymore. This Mm -hmm. is, can we hold on? The walls were nearly 19 kilometers long, which is around 12 miles for us red-blooded Americans. As Rome was the largest and most sprawling city in the world, all of it could not be enclosed. In the end, a bit over half the city was within the walls, notably the important financial, religious, and civil buildings. Like Aurelian's mints, the walls were highly standardized in their construction. This makes sense when you consider he conscripted guild members to build the thing. Mm -hmm. That in and of itself was an innovation that would carry on for the next century. Guild members will now be building stuff. The walls stood at around 6.1 meters in height, and their bases were 3.65 meters thick. That's 20 feet high and 12 feet thick. 381 towers dotted its length. There were certain places where existing structures were simply incorporated into the wall as they built it. Couldn't move it, couldn't destroy them, just build it into it. This included one wall of the Praetorian camp, which had to be raised up a bit to match the same level, possibly the mausoleum of Hadrian, and a pyramid-shaped building, which I imagine was a real pain in the ass to build around. Yeah. These were not going to be the tallest or most imposing walls, nor would they be the prettiest. We have some very, very, very impressive walls coming in the next few centuries in a different city that we'll get to. 
but these were to stop roving bands of barbarians and hopefully deter most of them from even bothering with a siege. Those that did lay siege could hopefully be held off until reinforcements arrived. Over the next 1,700 years, oh my goodness, these walls would get taller and thicker and serve to protect various governments, mostly the papal states, once the Vatican takes mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. in the West. Most of the wall, or much, not most, much of the wall still stands to this day, and I've seen it, and it's awesome. Aurelian also settled many barbarians on Roman lands, or just across the Danube from Roman lands. This was in part to help stimulate the economy, but also a way to have fighting men on the border ready to defend their new homes. We have seen this happening for centuries, like Marcus Aurelius did this, Mm -hmm. but uh, Aurelian ramps it up. A couple other things. Uh, The city of Orléans in France is named after Aurelian. It had been um, something else, and then he basically rebuilt it after he retook Gaul. So they renamed it uh, Orléans, and so that's where New Orleans comes from, also named after Aurelian. Um, And then, you know, like I said, he withdrew from Dacia, which was a huge change to the empire. And those are kind of the main things. It's a pretty big legacy. I mean, obviously, he's not he's not one of the household names. You haven't heard of him. No, but that's you know, that's just history for you. Uh, I think this is huge. He uh, he is the reuniter. He is the savior. um, And he set precedents that will carry on for a long time. So I'm hovering around that uh, seven and eight area again. Yeah, I think I think so too. Again, because there's a, I just know that there's a couple who maybe earn, will deserve a few more points than that mm-hmm. coming up. So I think I'm also gonna go with I'm gonna go with eight. I'll go with seven, just because he isn't a household name. Because that gives it, that just gives you the nice little cherry on top. For sure. Okay, so that is. Oh, I'm gonna have to do math now. Number fifteen. That's a lot. 15 we have three 15s which makes it pretty easy so that's mm-hmm. 45 plus 20 is 65 mm-hmm. plus 9 is 74 yeah 70 that's a high number that i need to need to get in and and look at that <laughs> <laughs> hold on i just want to go look and see if that's the highest so i had to run up to my computer upstairs and uh look at the list so caesar and augustus are the two top scores mm-hmm. and it's 86 and 82 oh so there's an 86 okay. yeah so 74 is third place yeah and in the crisis that's uh just pretty wild. darn good yeah yeah his uh his weakness was that he's not a terrible tyrant sure he could have that's where he's a lot of points yeah, yeah otherwise it was 15 20 15 15 for yeah. the rounds yeah so we only got two things left to ask the great so he deserves the great i don't know I don't know how you could not. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I okay, so. good. Yeah, so we got to give him that. Um, and I wish I, I want to know how long it's been since we've had. Who's the last great? It's been a long time. I don't know. It's been a while. Yeah, because yeah, it, it. I don't think we gave it to Severus. Mm-mm. We wanted to, but we couldn't. We couldn't justify it. Mm-hmm. And then Caracalla, definitely mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. So, but pff, we're talking. Oh my god. Oh my god. It's been like a hundred years. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> for right. sure. Well, good for you, Aurelian. You got it. You're the great. Um, so I've got a few options for epithets. Uh, Aurelian Invictus, after Sol Invictus, which means unconquered. Um, Aurelian Invictus Restitutor. Aurelian Restitutor Orbis. Aurelian the Reuniter. Aurelian the Unconquered. Any any combination of those striking your yeah, fancy? Yeah, I know. Well, it's something about the you want to, the Uniter. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, unconquered is technically true, but 
the Uniter is just it's better. I'll say for the rest of these names, we didn't use uh, the Latin titles. Uh, um, we we made our own. Trajan. We went with uh, Optimus Trajan. That sounds because, cool, though. Because it yeah. does sound cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think the joiner of pieces, but that doesn't... Now you're just talking about weird, like, fantasy ways of saying things. Yeah, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, 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 like, I like how, like, different Galenus's one was the one that tried <laughs> yeah <laughs> the one guy. that did aurelian <laughs> i mean aurelian fuck around and find out yeah that's also <laughs> true we can go with the we can go with the the unconquered uniter do you want to do it in uh, latin or it sounds cooler in latin aurelian invictus restitutor yeah all right let's do it this uh, it's the stone age Quite literally, by definition, not Stone Age. Yeah, <laughs> we <have paper laughs> writing, writing on paper. Oh, so sad. Oh, so many, so many good leaders that just get cut too soon from stupid things. From right. just people being like too quick to act, and yeah. then being like, "Oh no!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's the same with Gallienus. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, you look like you really you could have done something. Yeah. Especially with Claudius and Aurelian as generals underneath you, like, yeah. and then Aurelian just doing everything right, just getting it all done. Yeah, literally showing so much mercy all the time. Yeah, it's so it's so sad. But uh, yeah, one of my favorite to to research. Um, mm-hmm. If you guys want more detail on this stuff, I, I highly recommend the book by Alaric Watson. I was able to find just a free PDF online. Didn't even have to go hunting for it. So. So where do you think things are going now? We're still in the crisis. Down again. They were stable a little bit. Now it's just going to be more chaos. Yeah. Persia's probably going to try to... We're going to fight Persia now again. I'm sure. I actually don't know because I haven't looked too far ahead. I'm like, I'm not sure when we fight Persia next. Mm. It's probably coming. Maybe I was just thinking maybe they catch wind that there was going to be an invasion. Yeah, and they're like, <laughs> hmm, maybe let's, we should counter yeah, let's that. let go first. Yeah. I guess we'll see. We'll see next time. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Be sure to, um, whatever you're listening on, if there's a way to like this or leave a comment, go ahead and do that. I don't think we've had a single comment pop up yet. And I understand that because I've listened to hundreds of podcasts and have never Never, once left a comment, but (laughs) they're good. Um, We're on Apple Podcasts now too, which I know has rating systems and reviews. So if you do that, I'm sure it'll help us out. And uh, that's it. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time. Okay. Bye. Welcome to The Great Podcast, a show where we take a look at the important men and women of history and decide. Yep. Okay. Always. I don't like the word. (laughs) Dumb. It is a dumb word. It's not enough. Determined. So much better. No. Yes. <laughs> it's been decide too plain. Boring. Just dull. Decide. Uh once and for all. Yep. They're worth all the fuss. Yep. Yeah. If they are worth all the fuss. Okay. I really thought you had it. You kind of jumped in Let real strong. The first sentence is easy. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the great podcast. <laughs>